Hello and welcome to Going Viral, the podcast all about infectious diseases. I'm Mark Honigsbaum, a medical historian and science writer. On December the 31st, 2020, I took my mother to St. Charles's Hospital in North Kensington to get her a shot of the new Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. This is the last day of 2020 and I am sitting in St. Charles's Hospital in North Kensington having just had my Covid vaccine jab. It was almost a year to the day since the coronavirus had emerged in Wuhan and my mum's appointment couldn't have been more timely. That day as the new Kent variant of the virus, dubbed B117, surged through the population the UK recorded 53,000 cases of COVID, a new record. In the 1990s, my mother Naomi campaigned to save St. Charles's Hospital for the local community, so I knew it would be an emotional moment for her, but I couldn't have imagined just how emotional. I wasn't, I feel relieved that I've had it, a little bit emotional because of what it means to be in the age group that is being prioritised. It demonstrates something profound about our society. (laughs) Because it means even when you're 88, in one week I'm going to be 89, you are still valued. And, And that is a profound, important thing in our society. In 1918, St Charles's, then a poor law hospital, was the scene of a devastating outbreak of Spanish influenza. 100 years ago, there were no vaccines for Spanish flu or for any other pandemic virus, and scores of patients and several nurses died in what the hospital's then medical director, Basil Hood, termed the worst and most distressing occurrence of his professional life. So my mum was right. This was a profound moment. It was also an historic moment as never before have so many vaccines against the pandemic virus been developed in such a short space of time. I think this is an absolutely extraordinary event which will go down in history. It's the science story of the century, how successful vaccines against COVID-19 have been created in under a year. And in this series of Going Viral, I'll be taking a deep dive into the history and science of vaccinations, exploring how they work, where they come from, and where they may be going. Previously, it would take maybe 12 or 18 years to make a vaccine. Within a few months, it was apparent that there were several plausible vaccine approaches, any of which could actually yield results in terms of allowing a vaccine to be made. In this series, I'll be speaking to the scientists behind this Herculean effort, one that the US government has dubbed Operation Warp Speed. Today I'm speaking to Adrian Hill, the director of the Jenner Institute behind the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. I don't for a moment think we were in a race against Moderna or against Pfizer or Novavax or Janssen to produce a vaccine for COVID. We were in a race against this virus ever since January of last year. Unfortunately, not everyone shares my mum's enthusiasm for vaccines. Six days after I went with my mum to get her jab, I found myself queuing outside another hospital in London's Belgravia. I'd gone there with my wife, Jeanette, a frontline health worker, who'd been given a last-minute walk-in appointment. While she waited, I got talking to another health worker who was also queuing for a jab. My name is Shauna Lyle. 
and I work for Ealing Community Partners in Ealing and I'm here today to have my Pfizer vaccination and I haven't been able to tell my son that I'm having the vaccination as he's very anti the vaccination. He's 25 years old and I think he's been looking at a lot of social media and he's been getting a lot of false information from social media. He doesn't feel like it's been tested long enough. There's some theories that they're going to try and microchip everyone with the vaccination. I have tried to persuade him otherwise, but he seems adamant that he does not feel that it's safe to have the vaccination. It is very difficult. I have to respect that he has his his opinion, but it does worry me because he's actually a chronic asthmatic. And if he contracts COVID, he would become extremely ill. I've tried to instill that point on him, but I think he's at that age where they think they are right. And then he, he obviously he's on social media looking at this misinformation. Shauna's son isn't the only vaccine sceptic. Vaccine hesitancy is a global issue. In a recent survey, two in five Americans said they would not take a COVID vaccine if it was offered to them. A 2019 survey by the Wellcome Trust found similar levels of distrust in France and other European countries. Many health workers are also reluctant to be vaccinated. For instance, one hospital in Los Angeles found that only half their medics were willing to be inoculated against the coronavirus. In recent decades, there's been an extraordinary revolution in the understanding of the way in which vaccines can prevent common childhood diseases. This is Peter Openshaw, Professor of Experimental Medicine at Imperial College London. So I was born in 1954, and in childhood I experienced measles, German measles, mumps, chickenpox, I remember chickenpox, I actually caught TB when I was a young doctor from doing bronchoscopies on patients infected with HIV who also had TB. So my personal experience of childhood and early adulthood was repeated rounds of infection by diseases, many of which are now preventable by vaccination. So if you now talk to somebody who's in their 20s or 30s and you say, I've had all these infections, they look at you as if you are an ancient relic or a, a fossil because it's not their experience that any of these infections have troubled them at all. And I think that that is prone to lead to a sense of complacency about the accomplishments of vaccinology and of public health. You know, the speed with which it was possible to make vaccines in those early days in the 1950s and 60s was absolutely remarkable. All of those who were working to make vaccines both in the university sector where understanding of immunology was exploding, but also in the private sector, for example, at Merck, where there were absolutely extraordinary teams working at fast speed in order to generate vaccines, almost sort of just dream it up, cook it up and inject it. It then became much, much more regulated as a result of some accidents, some incidents when there was insufficient inactivation, for example, and live poliovirus was injected into, into children. So the, the whole way in which vaccines were made then became very tightly regulated, almost over-regulated at one stage, in a way that made vaccine development very slow, very laborious, and very expensive. And then over the last maybe 10 or 15 years, I think the appreciation 
developed that actually this was very inhibitory to the development of safe and effective vaccines, and that a more collaborative approach between the regulators and those who are making vaccines would actually expedite the development of vaccines and would lead to greater human benefit in terms of speedy development of effective and safe vaccines. So I think, you know, even in my lifetime, it's been remarkable to observe the development of of vaccinology and its impact on, on health. Is there any historical precedent for what we're seeing today with these new vaccines for COVID? To my mind, there is there is no real precedent except perhaps times of war when a common enemy has been identified and where everyone does whatever it is that's necessary in order to defeat that enemy. Part of the problem is that few people appreciate how vaccinology has been transformed in recent decades or how the regulations governing vaccine development have been expedited. When did you first register this outbreak in Wuhan and start to grow concerned about it? Here's Adrian Hill, the director of the Jenner Institute in Oxford. Professor Hill oversaw the team led by Sarah Gilbert that developed what has now become the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. Around about late January, Sarah had been working on it from day one, essentially the first day that the sequence was known, and had already started making vectors. And the discussion then was really an epidemiological one. What was likely to happen? Was this going to be a Chinese outbreak that could be controlled, like some uh, flu strains occasionally appear there and are pretty well controlled? Or was this going to go global? I was watching it like everybody else and also thinking, well, you know, this looks a little bit like a pandemic. It looks a little bit like 1918. But there's always that danger of, well, we don't really have the evidence yet and you don't want to cry wolf and, you know, end up uh, being proven wrong. At what point did you really feel that we should be concerned? Do you remember a moment? I I remember the the week when it became clear that what people were seeing was a much larger number of people who were infected than those who were diseased. And this really is the nightmare scenario. If people are infected for a long period before they become symptomatic or may not become symptomatic at all, and they infect other people, the famous R number, which everyone's now familiar with, and they weren't in January, is likely to be over two, maybe even over over three. And uh, therefore, if this was known to be in hundreds or thousands of people who were unwell in Wuhan, it almost certainly was in a much, much larger number and spreading rapidly and had probably moved elsewhere. And of course, it was already in Italy and moving rapidly around Europe by by February. So it, it was that insight that unlike Ebola, there were going to be a lot of, or there were a lot of people who were infectious, but not infected. And that's uh, a real red flag. And as the days went by, it was interesting to watch how people changed their view from this being something of a minor project to the only project. It took Hill and his colleagues just 11 months to show that their vaccine worked, that it was safe, and to get regulatory approval. Can you give us some insight into how quickly you were able to organise the team at the Jenner and start work on what became the AstraZeneca vaccine? So one of the things we're able to do at the Jenner, and it's relatively unusual, is span from 
discovery the whole way through to licensure trials of uh, new vaccines. So really my role was to try and identify how we would work together as a team. So suddenly we had uh, people transferring very rapidly from working on TB, malaria, whatever, to helping out on the COVID project. And we ended up with many hundreds of people within a couple of months. And over the last year, it's been a couple of thousand people who've been involved in the UK programme. Must have been quite a lot of coordination involved on your part. You must be aware that there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy about. And, you know, despite publishing the trial results, what you hear anecdotally is that they say, oh, it's all been a little bit quick. I'm not sure if I trust the vaccine. It's been very fast. And that's true. It has been very fast, hasn't it? It has indeed. Yes, exceptionally so. How is it that you've been able to do it so quickly? So it's mainly because... A huge number of people outside of the vaccine team have prioritized this response. So I've been trying to make malaria vaccines for over 20 years now. It takes time. People have been trying for over 100 years to make malaria vaccines. It's difficult, of course, technically. But, you know, we feel pretty strongly in our group that if it were prioritized more, if some of the things that were available immediately for COVID-19 were available, other vaccines would go much faster. Most obviously, you need funding. And there has been a lot of funding available for COVID because governments, funders made the obvious calculation that the economic cost of COVID is enormous. If we could end it sooner, even by a month, you'd get your money back many times over. So that was very helpful. But at least as important, people who we need permissions and approval and reviews from were ready to move extremely quickly. The funders, of course, to assess whether we were plausible candidates for making a good vaccine. Perhaps less obviously, all the people who assess the suitability of this candidate, so regulators, ethical committees, people assessing the safety of even handling the vaccine, all had to act very quickly and to their great credit, responded really remarkably quickly. I think if you go and look at other programs and calculate the percentage of time that we spend waiting for approvals, waiting for money, waiting for non-scientific things to happen, it's greater than the amount of time we spend actually doing the science. So the, the short answer to your question is no corners have been cut. We haven't left out any steps in the development process. It's just been possible to do them all a lot more quickly with this particular vaccine. Another key reason the Oxford team were able to develop a COVID vaccine so quickly is because of their previous expertise using the chimp adenovirus vector in other vaccines, including malaria, a particular interest of Hill's. So we started looking at this in clinical trials for malaria back in 2007. We probably have done most of the clinical trials of this type of vaccine over the ensuing 13 years for as many as 10 different disease indications. And those are trials not just in Oxford, but in particularly in Africa, in Europe, in North America. So there's a big safety database of how people respond to this vaccine and how well tolerated it is. 
Sarah Gilbert herself had been working on MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which is caused by another coronavirus, and had undertaken clinical trials in Oxford and more recently in Saudi Arabia with that vaccine. And those safety data were available to regulators who wanted to assess the likelihood that the vaccine we had just made was going to be safe in people. So the adenoviral vector technology has been in humans over several decades in many different vaccines for different indications. Those safety data exist and are accessible. And very importantly, they span follow-up periods of tens of years rather than tens of months, which is what we have currently for newer vaccine technologies like the uh, RNA vaccines. Can you just give some insight into the pressures that were on you and your team managing the expectations of politicians and the media. There was extraordinary press interest. Uh, uh, there was uh, exceptional pressure. It was very difficult to estimate how long it would take because th there were really two dates. When would vaccine be available? And there was the uh, suggestion that a million doses would be available by September. And uh, interestingly, that turned out to be correct. Uh, by September, a million doses had been manufactured. What had not happened by September, and this was far less predictable, was sufficient data accumulating on the efficacy of the vaccine to allow registration of the product, licensure, and, uh, and deployment. That was partly because over the summer period, uh, there just wasn't enough disease around, right, to get that data. Yeah, so the, the, the real pressure on us in May and uh, was we had started our clinical trials, but we were aware, even by the first week of May, that the epidemic curve in the UK, at least, was already on the way down. So we were hoping to catch the tail of it and get enough events in the trial to have a result by, say, September. And that may have worked, which is an odd thing to say when you remember that we announced in November and not in, in September. But of course, what a result is depends on what regulators and everybody else would like to see. If you just wanted statistical significance with a vaccine showing some efficacy, say 50%, the number that was uh, widely agreed, that may have been there by September. That was not really what we were trying to do by the time September came along. We were told by the FDA they'd like to see 150 cases in the trial, which is the number you need if the vaccine works at 50%. If the vaccine works at 80%, as most of these vaccines now do, you could argue that you need 40 cases. That would be very unlikely to not show up with an 80% effective vaccine. So what we were doing was, to an extent, accumulating more and more cases after the lull in the summer and the cases came back in October, November, December. It was easy to accumulate those. But, um, you know, then in a different outbreak, there may have been enough cases by September to analyze the data and go for licensure. Could we now turn to the policy issue that's come up in recent weeks about uh, a whether you know it makes sense to delay the second booster shot uh, and also 
the possibility of mix and matching vaccines. This was really brought home to me on New Year's Eve when uh, my mother, she was offered an appointment at St. Charles Hospital in North Kensington. And she was told when that appointment was made that she would have a second appointment for her booster three weeks later. So she's now had the Pfizer vaccine. But as I, as I speak to you now, I don't know for certain that that second appointment will be honoured or whether she goes there, whether she'll be offered the same vaccine or a different vaccine or be told to come back in 10 weeks for the Pfizer or perhaps the AstraZeneca vaccine. What's really clear is that with the AstraZeneca vaccine, that delaying the second dose is beneficial. It gives you stronger immune responses and it looks like it gives you better efficacy than uh, not delaying the second dose. The other really important point on our vaccine is that after a single dose, you get pretty good efficacy of just over 70%. So I don't think there's any controversy about the regulator's decision that delaying the second dose of our vaccine is effective in the current context of having to vaccinate huge numbers of people very quickly. And I think nearly everybody supports that. And, and just in passing, we should comment that that was discovered, some, that, that was the really non-intentional thing. We were hoping to vaccinate people more quickly with a one-month interval, maybe two months, not three months. And because we actually did vaccinate some people with a longer delay because of supply issues and logistic issues, we had a lot of people with a three-month interval. And we had rather suspected that might be better. And so it turns out uh, three months is, is better. So sometimes complexity in a trial is a real advantage. It points to the best immunization regimen. Then you ask about the Pfizer vaccine, which really, you know, is, is not our vaccine, something we know less about. It's a much newer technology. And there is only information on giving the vaccine with an interval of three weeks, as the company have repeatedly pointed out. In a statement, Pfizer said, there's no data to demonstrate that protection after the first dose is sustained after 21 days. For a regulator to then license it for a different regimen that has not been tested is unusual. It may work. I think it probably will work. Whether it will work as well after a single dose after two months as if you had given the second dose uh, three weeks later uh, is, is a different question. So I, I think a lot of people have been a bit concerned about that, but we are in, in very special times. I'm sure somebody is looking at this carefully now as some people are being given a dose at longer intervals. And the UK is very well placed to uh, monitor the efficacy of vaccines passively as well as actively. So I, I think that's all we can say about that uh, plan at the moment. But I think the very fact that the viral vector vaccines, our adenovectors, uh, work very well with a three-month interval may have encouraged people to think, well, maybe other vaccines can work well at that interval as well. And what about the mix and matching? I would not call them mix and matching because no mixing is, is involved. Um, you can mix vectors, but there's no real evidence that that works very well in any setting. What does work particularly well is changing the vector or vaccine type and giving one and then the other. And we have done a lot of this ourselves over the years in difficult diseases like malaria, and it certainly improves immunogenicity. Unfortunately for COVID, there is no evidence at all 
on what happens when you give an RNA vaccine and a viral vector vaccine one after the other. Those trials are beginning. My guess is they'll work very well, but um, I have no evidence to, to show you on that. I don't for a moment think it would do any harm, but whether it's as good as two doses of the same vaccine or better remains to be seen. I think it, it might even be better. But uh, again, the point is, we're doing something that has not been tested in a clinical trial. And to be fair, nobody's really recommending that. All that's being said is if in a very unusual circumstance where somebody can't get a second dose of the same vaccine, it's okay to give the other vaccine. How confident are you that there is now light at the end of the tunnel? I'm very confident indeed. The challenge ahead of us in deployment and manufacturing is still very substantial. But it's not a question of whether we can do this or not. It's a question of when and how quickly we can do this. And it should be all hands on deck. And I think some countries are beginning to understand that. For example, some countries have been very quick to license vaccines based on the available data. Other countries are not being as quick or are still convening committees or a little anxious about what to do. I, I very much hope that changes as we get to the point where there are far more countries that have licensed these vaccines than are thinking about it. So hopefully that will change very quickly over the coming weeks. Generally speaking, I mean, how worried are you that the coronavirus could mutate so as to render the Oxford vaccine and other vaccines ineffective? We are in a phase now where this other variant has emerged. That's not very surprising. RNA viruses and coronaviruses mutate. There is today no evidence that the new, more transmissible variant from Britain is any less susceptible to all the vaccines that have been developed. I think there may be some reduction in overall efficacy, but we're in a good place. We have vaccines that are 80 to 90% effective. Six months ago, we were hoping the world might have a vaccine that was 50% effective. So if 80 to 90% goes down to 60%, you've still got a pretty good vaccine against an emerging strain. We cannot stop the virus mutating. That's what viruses do. We have not seen a mutation that makes the virus more virulent. We have seen one that makes it more transmissible. But as yet, there's really no good evidence that that's going to stop the vaccines working. Even if it did, people like Sarah Gilbert are already making vaccines against the new variant strains. They can come through much more quickly than the original vaccine in the same way that if there's a new flu strain uh, that emerges in a few months' time, you don't have to spend a year getting approval for the new flu strain vaccine to be made. It can be done a lot more quickly. So I don't think there's a disaster scenario there. There's a tiny chance that it will be a substantial problem. But at the moment, it's just a problem of getting more cases rather than finding a much more virulent strain. Do you think that that is the most likely scenario that the SARS-CoV to becomes an endemic circulating virus that mutates in the similar way to flu and therefore requires an updated vaccine every season? Yes and no. What I mean is, I think it's very likely that this virus will come back and peak seasonally every winter for many years to come. I think it's going to take quite a bit of time for us to need a multi-strain vaccine like we do with flu, because coronavirus biologically is different. It looks as if 
not too many different strains are effective at being highly transmissible, but I'm guessing there. But you know, the key point is if we do need two or three strains in a coronavirus vaccine, that is very much technically feasible. I saw that Andrew Pollard received the vaccine the other day. Where are you in the queue? <laughs> this month, hopefully, but as a healthcare worker, not as somebody who has anything to do with vaccines. <laughs> right, okay. Fingers crossed, I should get there. I got an email about an hour ago from a colleague to say there were some vaccines available for staff. Within the next two hours, if I could make it to the Gordon Hospital in Pimlico, I'd be able to get the vaccine. So here I am. What sort of vaccine do you think you're going to get? I'm assuming AstraZeneca because we've been told that's what the trust will be giving out, although they were giving out Pfizer up until a week ago. That was my wife, Jeanette. In the spirit of full disclosure... I should say that initially she was hesitant about vaccination, preferring to wait until she could be sure of getting two doses of the same vaccine. However, as cases surged due to the Kent variant and she heard stories from colleagues of wards filling with patients, her hesitancy evaporated. Okay, so it's 4.30 on January the 5th, 2021. And my wife, Jeanette, has just come out of the Gordon Hospital in Belgravia. What happened inside? Well, I received the Pfizer. The staff were great. Everyone was very jolly. And I feel great. I had the vaccine about 15 minutes ago so far. I mean, I didn't even feel it going in. My arm doesn't hurt. Um, They've booked my follow-up appointment in 10 weeks' time. And I've been told that will be Pfizer as well, which is good news because I was slightly worried they were going to try to mix and match. I feel incredibly privileged. I'm privileged to be a part of the NHS that's put this all together. (laughs) Sorry. I didn't think I was going to feel emotional. No, it's great. I mean, I just, I don't know why I'm suddenly feeling very emotional. It's a historic moment. Yeah, no, and I feel relieved. But, you know, while I was sitting in the observation room after, I saw on my phone the headlines tonight that there was a thousand more daily deaths today from COVID, which is so shocking. So I just want everyone to get this vaccine. But I just feel this is, you know, an amazing thing to be a part of. And I'm so proud of the NHS. As I record this at the end of January, England and Wales have registered an astonishing 100,000 deaths from COVID-19. That's one of the highest death tolls in the world. Sadly, that figure will almost certainly rise further in the coming months. One thing that could bring the pandemic to an end sooner are more vaccines. Here in the UK, the Medicines and Health Regulations Agency has just approved another RNA vaccine manufactured by Moderna. Currently, there are 150 other vaccines in development, including ones from Johnson & Johnson and Novavax, all products of Operation Warp Speed. In the next episode, I'll be looking at how, long before anyone had heard of the Wuhan virus, scientists were preparing for a pandemic sparked by an unknown pathogen, a so-called Disease X. Within a second, you think, that's really good. That's exactly what it is. It's from the mathematical equation, X is the unknown. And I'll be unpicking the science behind these new vaccines. The concept is that the vaccines we're using will give a better, longer-lasting, more robust immunity than natural immunity. And if they don't, we just give them more regularly. Thanks for listening to Going Viral. You can find us on Twitter at goingviral underscore pod and on Instagram at goingviral underscore the podcast. I'm Mark Honigsbaum. And my producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. This has been Facts and the Facts.